1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through James.
0: Real love is calling, listen. Truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you
2: with every sunrise. Even if you've just broken one commandment, you're guilty of breaking it all. All right, there's no such thing as a Partially righteous person. You're either all in or you're not. And when you realize that, man, I'm a lawbreaker, even if you've broken just, you know, one commandment, it highlights the fact that in ourselves we don't have it within us to be perfectly obedient to every aspect of the commandments, and thus we need a savior.
1: Have you ever broken the law? Have you ever broken one of the Ten Commandments? If you answered yes, then the truth is you're guilty of all. Pastor Gary teaches us in today's message that to break any of the commandments is to break the whole law. If you have a chain and break a single link, then the chain is now broken. The law works the same way. All it takes to be guilty is to break one little link in the chain. The good news is that Jesus paid the penalty for the law that we've all broken. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of James, chapter 2, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: James chapter 2 is where we are. We actually left off around verse 10, but let me summarize and let me actually read verses 1 through 9 again, and then I'll summarize that portion of chapter 2. Uh, James says, my brethren do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with partiality or some translations say favoritism. For if there should come into your assembly, a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man you stand there or sit here at my footstool have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts listen my beloved brethren has god not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him but you have dishonored the poor man do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the into the courts did they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So just to kind of recap that much, uh, for those of you taking notes, there are two great themes from James chapter two, and the first one here in the verses I just read is don't show favoritism. And he tells us within those verses there are three reasons why showing favoritism to one another within the body of Christ or with any, in regards to anybody in, in general, but in particular in the context here in the church, uh, the reason why showing favoritism is a sin is because number one, it is inconsistent with God's nature. Number two, it is, in, it is inconsiderate of others. Number three, it is incompatible with the law of love. And so we talked about this last time. Just to recap real quickly, it is inconsistent with God's nature. He says there in verse 1, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality or favoritism. Why? Because God doesn't show favoritism. It is contrary to His nature. And so when we do that, we are acting contrary or in opposition to the character and nature of our Lord. Romans 2.11 says God does not show favoritism. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter was used by the Lord to preach the gospel to the family of Cornelius, who were Gentiles, and he saw them get saved, then he responded by saying in Acts 10.34-35, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear God and do what is right. And so if God accepts everyone, but we don't, because we elevate one person over another, or thereby we devalue one person over another, we sin. It's also, number two, inconsiderate of others. A favoritism not only shows that we pander to certain people, but it exposes hidden, hidden prejudice or hidden discrimination on the other end of the spectrum. In other words, if you're showing favoritism, if you're esteeming some people above others, in the process of showing favoritism to one person, you are in effect then, uh, by default, discriminating against others. And the root of discrimination is pride. It is when one sees himself or herself above another person as better than, more important than, more valuable than. Discrimination and rejection are the opposite ends of favoritism, and it can be very damaging. This is why Paul would write in Philippians 2 verse 3 that we should always esteem others better than ourselves. If you want to avoid discrimination against other people, then always esteem them better than yourself. And then thirdly, it is incompatible with the law of love. James writes there in verses eight and nine, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from Leviticus 1918. He says, you do well. He says, good job. But if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, you commit sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. So we are to love our neighbor as ourselves why because God attaches equal value to every human being regardless of race or net worth or education or any descriptive which is why James writes here about you know the poor guy and the rich guy and if you value the rich guy and you show favoritism towards that guy you're discriminating against the poor guy and God shows equal value to all people regardless of their social status, background, race, creed, color, all that stuff. And so therefore then, when we show less love to one person than we do to another, we're violating this royal law of love and we are guilty of sinning because we have devalued what God has valued. Now, verse 10 is where we left off here, so let's pick up at verse 10 where he writes this, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, this is for he being God, who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So let's Park it there just at verses 10 and 11 for a moment. For you note-takers, James is warning here by the Holy Spirit against two things, selective obedience and relative innocence. In other words, when we see here how he writes about how um, we are to understand that the same one who wrote, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder, he's describing here selective obedience. God calls us to obey all of his commandments. We don't get to pick and choose which ones we like and which ones we don't. Now, granted, some commandments go down easier, like ice cream, and other commandments are like Brussels sprouts, you know, and you got you to cook it up good, put a lot of butter and salt on it to even make it halfway tasty. I'm just not a Brussels sprout guy. Maybe some of you are. I'm just not. I'm more of an ice cream guy. You know, if somebody offers me, you want Brussels sprouts or you want ice cream, I'm going to choose ice cream every single time. And that's the way sometimes the Bible is, sometimes it goes down, oh, this is sweet. Oh, this is smooth. And other times you're like, oh, God. but it's good for you, you know? And so we can't be selective about God's word. Sure, there are going to be some verses and some commandments that are easier for you to obey than others. And then there are others that are more challenging to us, but it's all good. And we can't practice selective obedience. I like some of these verses. I don't like others. The ones I like, I'm going to obey. The ones I don't like, I'm not going to obey. Listen, the Bible's like going to Costco. All right. If you go to Costco and you're like, I only want one can of tuna. It ain't going to work. You're going to get 35 cans of tuna. Whether you like it or not, and you just can't go and be selective and say, well, out of the 35, I'm just gonna pull out one little can, I'm gonna go pay for it at the, at the, at the register. It doesn't work like that. You, it's a package deal. You, if you want tuna, you're gonna get 35 cans of tuna. Alright? That's the way the Bible is. It's not like, I'm gonna pull one little verse out cause I like that. That's all I want. I just want the one. It's a package deal. So you're, you gotta, you gotta accept all of it. And this is what James is warning here against. And then the other thing he's warning against there is relative innocence, because he he's basically reminding us that we can't use the argument. Well, you know, I might um, I might fool around on my spouse every once in a while, but at least I haven't killed anybody, <laughs> you know. And then think I'm good to go. You know, I might I might cheat every once in a while, but I'm not a murderer. And so I got something going for me. But that, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. You know, let's say that you are an accountant at a, at a big Fortune 500 company. All right. And your boss says to you, I want you to transfer $100 million to this other account. And you transfer $99 million and you keep a mill for yourself. Okay. Your boss is not going to commend you. Say, well, that was really decent of you. You, you kept 99%. Uh, Of what I told you to do, you were faithful with 99%, all right? That 1% that you dishonored your boss and kept that one mil for yourself, that's what's going to land you in jail. So your boss is not impressed with the fact that you were 99% obedient and 1% disobedient. The 1% is what you're going to be judged for. That's the way it is here. We, we can't just claim relative innocence because, you know, I'm keeping 99% of the law. This is why he says there in verse uh, 10, for whoever stumbles at one point of the law is guilty of breaking it all. So again, it's, it's a total package here. And we, we can't claim that we're basically innocent people because we've kept 99%. Uh, you know, this, he's setting up the basis here for why we need a Savior. You see this, right? Because every single one of us is a lawbreaker. Even if you've just broken one commandment, you're guilty of breaking it all. All right, There's no such thing as a partially righteous person. <laughs> you're either all in or you're not. And when you realize that, man, I'm a lawbreaker, even if you've broken just you know one commandment, it highlights the fact that in ourselves we don't have it within us to be perfectly obedient to every aspect of the commandments, and thus, we need a Savior. And so we, we can't claim selective obedience, and we can't claim relative innocence. And he says in, in verse 12, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now, I like the way that James phrases that, the law of liberty, because it is both. We are under liberty... Under grace. As New Testament Christians, we live under grace, so we have liberty. But we are still bound to the moral code of the law. For those of you who don't understand, let me just break down for, for, for us. The Old Testament law, which God gave to us, basically breaks down into three categories. The ceremonial, dietary, and moral aspects of the law. Some of the Old Testament scriptures had to do with the ceremonial stuff, Uh, what to wear, uh, certain feasts to to observe, um, certain ritual practices of purification. So those were ceremonial. Then there were dietary aspects of the law. Sometimes you read your Old Testament, it talks about... You know, not eating shrimp, not eating, you know, uh, uh, things that are what, what they call um, bottom feeders on the bottom of the sea, like so shellfish, right? All this kind of stuff, crab, off, pork, off limits, all these dietary things, ceremonial laws, dietary laws, and then there's the moral code. Okay, now, good news, Colossians 2 verse 16 and 17 says, let us... Not judge one another in regards to food or drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of the things to come. Okay, Paul was writing about Old Testament laws in those categories of ceremonial or dietary aspects. He says, but they have been fulfilled in Christ. Okay. And so Jesus comes along in Mark 7:19 and he declared all foods clean and he says in Mark 7:19 for it's not what goes into a man that makes a man unclean, but it's what comes out of the heart. So the heart is the sinful issue. And so the dietary and ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law have been fulfilled in Christ, we're no longer bound to the ceremonial or dietary aspect. Now, some of those things might be good for you if you still want to say, well, I don't, I don't think I want to eat pork and I don't want to eat shrimp and crab. Okay. Maybe that's good for you. So you don't have to, but don't feel like you have to observe those as a way of, you know, being a better Christian. When Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7, 19, I'm all in for shrimp and crab. Pulled pork barbecue, praise God, all right? You know, every time I go to Israel, this is like my 15th trip this la- last week, about the third day, even though I'm not much of a bacon guy, when it's not there at all, I'm like craving bacon. I'm like having a bacon attack, like three days into the trip, like, but there isn't, you're not going to find any bacon, you're not going to find any sausage. I'm so glad to come back to America, when I have some freedom with this. <laughs> Everything's better wrapped in bacon, I'm just telling you. Even when you fry bacon, it sounds like applause. (laughs) You know, anyway, it's true. But the moral code of the law is still intact. The moral code of the law is still intact. And so James is saying how you speak and what you do should still be governed by the moral code of the law, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, but in him is a righteous standard. He's not replaced the moral code. He is the moral code. He's fulfilled the ceremonial and dietary aspects, which were pointing to Christ. But we're still bound by the law of liberty. So even though we're under grace, we still have a moral code to observe. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a hard verse. So, uh, from different commentaries, I'm going to give you two possibilities of interpretation on this verse. Uh, Some scholars say it basically means that God exalts mercy over judgment. It can can mean both of these, or it can mean either of these. Verse 13 can mean that God exalts mercy over judgment, which is a good thing. Uh, I I want His mercy every day, not so much as judgment, right? So, we want mercy. It can also mean a statement related to our disposition concerning these things. That a merciful man rejoices over opportunities to show mercy more than in acting according to strict justice. So take your pick. It probably means one of those or maybe a little bit of both. And then we come here to verses 14 through the end of the chapter, verse 14 through 26. And this is where we come to the second great theme of James chapter 2. The first is don't show favoritism. The second is do put faith into action. Let me read verses 14 through 26 and then we'll come back up and, and dig it out. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warned and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. By the way, that's a phrase he uses three times in that section there. Faith without works is dead. The year was 1517, and a Roman uh, Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther, took issue with his own church's policy on the topic of justification. At issue for Martin Luther was whether or not a person was justified by faith alone or justified by faith and good works. His church, the Roman Catholic Church, taught and still does today that it's the latter. Justification is by faith. And works. But Luther began reading his Bible. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, for example, says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And he also read Galatians 3.11. No one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Many other passages like this, as Luther was reading through his New Testament, and thus he rejected the doctrine of justification by works. He took issue with other doctrines as well, and he compiled them in a long list of 95 points called 90, the 95 Theses, that on October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther enumerated on a piece of scroll and then nailed that scroll to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. For doing that, he was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church, he was defrocked, and Protestantism began because Luther took issue with the idea of justification by works. He understood, as Scripture teaches, that justification is by faith alone. And because one of his main objections with the Roman Catholic Church was their combination of faith and works, when Luther read the Epistle of James, he had trouble with it, and he called it the Epistle of Straw. Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. He thought James was placing too much emphasis on the idea of works, this passage that we just read here, the end of chapter 2. He thought that James was saying that good works was a condition of salvation, but that's not what James was saying. Martin Luther interpreted the epistle of James incorrectly. That's not my opinion. That's the opinion of every Bible scholar since. What James was saying here and how Martin Luther misread the book of James James was not saying that you had to do good works in order to be saved. James was saying that true Christians will do good works because they are saved. Okay, If you're taking notes, you can write it down this way. Works are not necessary to be saved. They are evidence that you are saved. The point that James was making in this is that a mature Christian will put faith into Action. Another way of saying this is that faith is what you believe and it proves itself by how you behave. That's why he writes here about this inextricable connection between faith and worse. Because if you truly are saved based on what you believe, it will prove itself by the way that you behave. And if you take away behavior from the belief system, then you are left simply with a faith based on belief that has no evidence in action, Which is why he points out here about demons. because he says if it was only about belief, then the demon should be commended here. Open
1: ocean, jump in and you'll find the your connection run towards your new life. Pastor Gary Hamrick is bringing us through the book of James in the current series on Cornerstone Connection. The book of James is filled with incredible words to live by, like these. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. These are hard words to practice, but James gives us a reason. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There is nothing more beautiful than a faithful heart, But the path to growing one is filled with hard things. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 4, that when steadfastness has had its full effect, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So next time you face a trial or hardship, remember these words from James and begin to count it all joy. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry out of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Do you live in the area? take the next step and come see us in person. We would love to share a Sunday service with you at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 in the morning. We're also here every Wednesday night at 7. When you enter into community, you start to grow in the faith at a faster pace. We'd love to be that community for you. Well, we're out of time for today, but we'll be right here again next time. Come back and see us as we learn how to follow Jesus more closely together on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know but still you know You're not a